0: These years, I actually, my first reaction was, you know, well, I'm an atheist because if God exists, then he's a jerk.
1: Welcome to Trending Jewish, right here at the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College and Jewish Reconstructionist communities and beautiful downtown windcoats. It's actually beautiful today, even though yesterday we had a torrential downpour that took out the power to my co-host Brian Schwartzman's house. I'm Rachel Burgess and we work here. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Brian. Oh, so this is different. Usually what's Hello, Brian.
2: I'm trying. I'm trying to be extra cheery today to make up for the lack of uh, lack of sleep last night caused by caused by the power outage. You don't think about how much we we kind of depend on electricity until until it goes, and you have uh, in my case um, a couple children under under six to to take care of, and uh, luckily we found uh, shelter at uh, at mother-in-law's house, and. Uh, Always all okay, except for the the amount of sleep I got. But it's a it's a beautiful day, and we are we are thrilled to be here.
1: See, I have such a I have such a respect for parents like you, and also for our guest that's going to be joining us today, Jennifer James. I I just have a cat, and usually when it's thundering outside, he just hides behind the toilet seat, and he just hangs out there until it's all over.
2: I hear cats are pretty hard work. Is that is that true?
1: No, no. Well, he he's just a bit of a attention seeker so like he he photo bombs so if you're trying to take a picture he's got to jump into it if I'm taking um, if I'm teaching a webinar from home he's got to be in the camera he knocks the camera over he sits on my cell phone he just
2: I mean I was always a dog person. I think I have an innate distrust of cats, but maybe that's just prejudicial on my part. So.
1: so, um so Jennifer James, I'm so glad that you're here because my dear colleague Brian Schwartzman had written this great article about you and your backgrounds um that was featured in our monthly newsletter reconstructionism today and it came out around the time of shavuot which is a time that we typically read the book of ruth who is considered Mm -hmm. one of the most important um people to convert to judaism and your your background and your career in general just has us Fascinated, and and we're gonna try and not take up your entire day just asking you questions, but um, but it's really exciting to get to finally meet you.
2: Hi, hi, Jennifer. We we had the chance to uh, to chat a bunch. Uh, ooh, who's that in the background?
0: Uh, that said. would be Bob Barker.
2: <laughs> that is great. My that dog, because awesome.
0: <laughs> I am a dog person.
2: The price is right. So um, we have yeah. <laughs> Jennifer had to, and I had to, had the chance to talk a couple months back for this article that you can you can also find on jewishrecon.org. She is joining us from San Antonio, Texas, is a uh, past president of uh, Congregation Beth Am there. Jennifer works as a hospice social worker. She has a, a really strong uh, background, a, a master's degree in Jewish studies. Um, you know, has really been a seeker throughout throughout her whole life, and and uh, is the uh, parent of uh, twin three year olds now. Is that is that right? Almost three. There'll be
0: three at the end of
2: August. Ah, okay. So early early birthday. So so welcome welcome to our podcast, and and uh, thank you know thank you for. Uh, Thank you for uh, chatting with us for for a bit. Um, so, I guess sure. I'll <laughs> I guess I'll, I'll I'll get it I'll get it started. Um, just just uh, for uh, on a on a on a light note. I always say I try to try to keep it light, and we always get into the heaviest topics. Um, t- for, 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 <laughs> for 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 our readers who might not be aware, our listeners and 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 for us as well. What can you tell us a little bit about? What a hospice social worker is what you what you do um sure
0: i so I'll stop our <clears throat> excuse me, I'll start by just talking a little bit about hospice period because there are so many people who don't know what that is um, so with hospice, a lot of people picture a place where you actually go to finish out your life, and they also think of. Um, the fact that it's really someplace maybe you go for the last few days but in actuality we treat people who are at the end of life um, people who have an estimated life expectancy of six months or less although a lot of times that can vary quite a bit because we have to recertify patients every two to three months and if they seem like they still have six months or less to live they can potentially be on hospice for years. Um, if they just, you know, their health declines more slowly than we expect. So, but we we treat them in their homes, wherever that may be. So for some people it's nursing homes, for some people it's their houses. And we are available 24 seven, but we're not in the home 24 seven. So that being said, some of my main roles as a hospice social worker, um, one of the main things I help with is do not resuscitate orders if people want them. It's something we generally encourage because um for an otherwise healthy 40-year-old who just happens to be walking down the street and just happens to have a heart attack, the chances of successful CPR are like 6%. So for an elderly terminal patient with a lot of problems, um, CPR just pretty much never works so I I, you know I do a lot of education on that I help them complete a do not resuscitate order if they want one but of course the choice is still entirely theirs I help people with funeral arrangements if they need help doing that um, one of the big things I do is trying to find people uh, what I call alternative sources of care because a lot of times the family just can't do it uh by themselves you know I, if i have a patient whose only caregiver is his equally frail 85 year old wife she's going to need help or if it's a son or daughter who works three jobs there you know the, those people need help um and unfortunately that's the hardest part of my job because i can only offer people the resources that are out there provider services are extraordinarily expensive um, and the state of Texas offers provider services, but you have to be able to qualify uh, for Medicaid in order to get them, and the eligibility requirements are extremely strict. Um, you know, I can place people in nursing homes, but a lot of people, you know, a lot of families won't hear of that. So that's one of the hardest parts of my job. And then I'm also just kind of a jack-of-all-trades that people need transportation you know or groceries or um, you know they have a son in prison and they want to talk to him one last time before they die then I can arrange a phone call just anything that's non-medical that helps the hospice patient and family's journey be a little bit easier that's something I do and then I'm a source of emotional support we all are everybody on the team is there because it's a hard journey so Um, That's kind of what I do in a nutshell.
1: (laughs) So I've heard that when, especially in this line of work where you have to kind of provide a lot of I guess, pastoral care, um, which I, 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 that term comes to my mind because I know at one point you were actually considering going into the rabbinate um, and you ended up finding this as your calling. You're putting a lot of your emotional self, you're spending a lot of time really getting involved in these families if you're giving people rides and trying to find out what they need and being able to comfort them. And how do you... I mean I guess how do you keep from emotionally draining yourself because you also I mean on top of all of this you have a very busy life where you are just constantly giving you are constantly you are taking care of your beautiful family You've, you take care of your congregation how do you replenish yourself how do you keep yourself from burning out
0: well, you know, I think you have to have the right kind of personality to do this. I think, you know, and I'm not sure I can really explain why I'm this way. I think I've got just the right amount of distance from the people I work with. You know, I feel like I can get, um, I feel like I have enough empathy to, um how should I put this? I, I'm close enough to them that I can empathize, you know, and I, I can offer that support, but I'm far enough away that I don't take it home with me, um, that I don't make it personal. And, of course, one of the reasons I, I can empathize, as I mentioned to Brian when we talked before, is that I've been sick with various chronic illnesses my whole life, so... um I do feel that, you know, those are what make me good at my job because even though I may not have had the disease that the patient I'm dealing with has, um, I've been weak, I've been in pain, I've been hooked up to tubes, so I can still understand some of what they're going through even if I haven't gone through their specific issue. Um, and so, you know, back back to your question, I I don't really take it home with me at night. It's just not, it's just not an issue. And I guess a lot of people don't understand how, you know, how can you work with the, the dying every day and not get depressed. It doesn't depress me because I feel like these people are going to die regardless. And so if I'm there then at least I'm I'm helping them through it you know so there's nothing I can do to change the out the ultimate outcome but I can make them feel better while they're going through all of this and so for me it's actually more of a joyful experience you know I remember when I first volunteered um I started volunteering in in cancer wards when I was still in in college and I remember the very first time I walked out of the hospital I was volunteering in, I I felt really happy and the reason I felt really happy is because I didn't give these people cancer and I can't take it away but I felt like I did some good and that made me happy. You know, I, I guess I feel like I, I don't need to. Um, what's the word you use? Replenish afterwards because it actually makes me feel good as opposed to bad. If that makes any sense.
1: Wow.
2: This might be rephrasing the question in in a, in a different way, but it also might speak to some of what has led to your, your lifelong spiritual search. I mean, you mentioned some of the unfortunate diagnosis and illnesses you've, you've grappled with and 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 some of the symptoms of that um, I mean how do you just not throw up your hands and say this this stinks or why me or I you know I can't you know I can't deal with this I mean uh, I just I just had a little power outage and, it, and and it caused a mini existential crisis I mean you've you know you <laughs> but but it seems like you you, you must have uh, you must you must you know you must find some way to to fight through that
0: well i you know to be honest i do have days where i'm extremely bitter where i'm hopeless where i do ask you know why me i don't know anybody else who collects autoimmune diseases the way i do like (laughs) it's a hobby or something um (laughs) so you know and honestly this is I don't want to get too political here, but this, the the most frustrating thing about all my illnesses is what a struggle it is to get it all paid for in our crazy healthcare system. Um, you know, Kafka could not have come up with the scenarios I face every day. You know, like he had, he had nothing on the bureaucratic nightmare I go through. So, I mean being on the phone fighting with my insurance companies, my durable medical equipment company, um, or I should say my insurance company and my durable medical equipment companies and my pharmacies and my doctors and trying to get them all talk to each other and they all hold my life in my hands but I can't force them to check the correct boxes on the forms to get it all paid for. That's very frustrating. And so personally, I dream of the day when the biggest worry I have about my illnesses is the illnesses themselves. So, yes, you know, I I get very frustrated, but what are you going to do? You know, you just, you just keep fighting because to give up is to die. So, um, and I'm not ready to do that yet because I have three-year-old friends. Um, so, you know, I, when I was a kid, when I first got hit with all this, um, I got type one diabetes when I was 10 and in the following year I developed serious asthma when we moved to San Antonio which is like the allergy capital of the world um, they found a hole in the back of my retina when they were doing my yearly diabetic eye exam when I was 11 so I had to have surgery to fix that you know and and then um, when I was 13 I started developing Crohn's disease but I just didn't know it yet I didn't actually get diagnosed until I was 23 but I had the symptoms the whole time so you know, through my teenage years, I actually, my first reaction was, you know, well, I'm an atheist because if God exists, then he's a jerk. Um, but then I, you know, I started figuring out that, you know, if I'm constantly shaking my fist at God and being angry with God, then I obviously am not an atheist, you know? <laughs> um <laughs> and long story short you know over the years my anger and bitterness waned a bit and i started thinking a lot about you know just the, the good things i saw in the world and of course um i'm not going to get scientific but one of the laws of thermodynamics if you rephrase it it basically says that the universe is in a constant act of simplification Um, so a lot of the complexity that we see in living things like doesn't make any sense from a thermodynamic point of view Um, you know like if you look at a leaf and the way the veins you know how intricate they are and you know the beauty of flowers you know what purpose does that serve I you know I realize bees pollinate flowers and all that based on how bright they are, but you know why do we appreciate the beauty and We don't have time in a podcast for me to get into all my my uh um, existential and theological musings, but long story short, I started thinking started realizing I did believe in. God or a higher power of some sort, and um you know, and then I found Judaism, which is uh the discussion in mentioned or the the topic of discussion in Brian's article, so I won't rehash all of that
1: so you know it's actually really interesting where you're talking about your your spirituality and the way that you view the world. Once you kind of understand what your connection is to a higher power, gaining all of this appreciation for the natural and even unnatural things in the world, how do you go about finding a spiritual home that says, you know, I can I can come here. I can be a member of this congregation and I can be part of this community and I can be a leader in this community. What is that journey like? You mean in, times, in terms of finding Judaism or in terms of finding Beth Am? Probably a little bit of both, but I'm also very curious about how you found, you know, somehow in the middle of Texas, a community, because, I mean, I lived out in the Southwest also, and finding um, a Jewish community that really, you can find a spiritual home, I mean, that's, that's, it's not like Philadelphia, where there's a bunch of different Jewish communities around here. How did you find one that really spoke to you. Um,
0: Okay, so regarding Judaism itself, you know, so I went through this 8 phase, and then I realized that, no, I really did believe in in God, and I thought a lot. I've always been kind of introspective and um, thought about you know what? What did I believe about God? How does the universe work? What is my purpose in life? And I was also a big reader, and I started reading about different religions. And the more I read about Judaism, the more I said, "Hey, this is what I already believe." Um, it was more a case of finding a name for who I already was and what I already thought. And one of the things I've always admired about Jews and Judaism is that. It's really, you know, and I don't claim to speak for all Jews, but I think it's more accepted in Judaism than it is elsewhere that, you know, I, I can totally picture a Jew walking to shul while simultaneously shaking his fist at God and saying, what the hell were you thinking? Like that that's kind of, to me, that's a very Jewish thing to do. You know, we argue with God. We've got kind of a, a, a sense of humor that allows for that. And it doesn't mean that we don't honor and respect God. It just means that we have maybe more of a, you know, just a different relationship than, let's say, Christians or Muslims do. Um, You know, it's it's more of a, I almost want to say a give and take relationship. Uh, where we can have that conversation, where we think that, you know, God's okay with us thinking, you know, about what what we believe, and God's not going to strike us down for questioning what we believe. And, um, skipping ahead, I mean, I, Ju- Judaism made sense to me on so many levels, and to this day, I will read something about Judaism that I think, you know, that... I hadn't maybe consciously identified that as something that's uniquely Jewish, but um, now that I think about it, that's also always been a part of how I think about the universe. So I guess I was just born with a Yiddish Neshama, <laughs> I <I'd> they say. <laughs> um, so, um, And as for Beth Am, I actually, I might not have found a Beth Am if I had been in Philadelphia, I don't know. Um, I mean, it was actually easier to find Beth Am in San Antonio because we only have, I think, oh, let me think, uh, three Chabad Rodfe Gudas. We've got, um, currently, I think, seven, six or seven Jewish congregations here.
1: Wow, that was, Which kind of narrows
0: down. Well, it's, it's more than we had a few days ago because there was a kind of a schism in the conservative shul and then a schism in one of the the breakoffs from that one. So then we ended up with three where there were one, where there was one. Um, I actually started out at the Reform Temple Bethel uh, when I was 16, but I never quite fit in there. Um, And I think a lot of it had to do with my age. I started college when I was 16, so I didn't fit in with the teenagers, but I was 16, so I didn't fit in with the adults. Um, and then mid-college, I, I started going to the conservative shul, which had a reconstructionist rabbi and orthodox cantor at the time, and they were actually the best team. It was like the perfect balance. Um, you know, the reconstructionist rabbi, Richard Siegel, was a nice guy, and of course I agreed with his, you know, theological views. Um, the Orthodox Cantor just gave everything more of a traditional feel. Um, and they they were a good team. It was a good place for me for a long time. But then I went off to the Northeast to pursue my Masters in Jewish Studies. And when I came back, Rabbi Spiegel had moved on um, to California, and Cantor that he was friends with also left and went elsewhere. Um, and the congregation changed after that because the new rabbi and cantor didn't get along and that caused the schism and then um, when they split up the congregation became much much more conservative and so then I went in search of a new shul and I wound up at Beth Am and I had already I had always kind of considered myself a reconstructionist but I had just never gone to Beth Am before because they held they rent space in a Unitarian church, and I just wasn't comfortable with the thought of going to services in a church. But as it turns out, they rent space in their fellowship hall, so it's not like, you know, they're hanging out in a sanctuary um, of a church, and I just fell in love with it the first couple of times I went there. They were very welcoming. Um, It's really a, a family, you know, probably because it is small. You know, it's not impersonal the way some larger congregations can be.
2: You mentioned, I think, the the magic word, welcoming. That's been such a such a buzzword in, in Jewish life over you know the last twenty years, maybe maybe even less. Um, so many institutions, congregations are trying to be more welcoming to people who fit outside the traditional box. Um, you know, intermarried families, Jews of color. Jews by choice um, you know you, you you name it I mean in, I mean you know as I, I mean I, I'm wondering what your experience is like you know especially since you, you you've checked out different denominations you've been in the East Coast and and in Texas I mean you know as a on a general curve like how how would you say the Jew, you know the American Jewish community is doing in terms of being welcoming
0: well I mean I can only speak about Beth Am and it was really just a the attitude of the people, the fact that I, that I fit in, that they allowed me to fit in, you know, that they were interested in me as a person and, um, what I had to offer. Um, you know, I, I just remember, I mean, I, and part of it is probably that Beth Am has always interested in Having new members because, you know, one extra person is a much bigger deal if you've got 40 than it is if you have a congregation of 400. They were just very friendly. And, um, I also, I feel useful there in a way I could never have been at the other San Antonio congregations. Um, you know, we, we are, our own we run our own show so to speak we don't have a regular rabbi we have a rabbi who comes in from out of town once a month but the rest of the time we have a lay leader named marion who leads all the services somebody else has to lead them um we take turns doing the divray torah and and reading the haftarah and reading the torah And so I've read from the Torah um, before, and the thing is, I don't know the trope, so I could have never done that at the conservative synagogue, where they have people who can read the Torah like they were born reading it, and that's just not something I'm able to do, especially since I don't know the trope. I mean, you you couldn't read the Torah at the conservative synagogue and not know the trope. It would cause a scandal. So, but at Beth Am, I can I could just read it, and they're okay with that. You know, they're just happy to have somebody who's willing to participate. <laughs> and so it was great for me, too, because, you know, hey, I got a chance to read from the Torah, and that was wonderful. And it was a chance for me to learn more about Judaism and Jewish practice by doing, you know. So, I mean, those are all things that I liked about Beth Am, and I'm not sure it's something that you can necessarily... Teach, you know, it's not something that you can just snap your fingers and say, Hey, we need to be more welcoming. It has to be organic.
1: So, we're actually wrapping up but I'm, I'm curious also now that you have a nice young family what are you hoping that your kids learn um, as they you know they're becoming little people now and they're gonna be mm-hmm. questioning God and they're gonna have things that go wrong and they're gonna have things that go right um, what are you hoping that they learn from the lessons that you've gone through in your life you know I I've
0: thought about this quite a bit as most parents do I'm sure um, I I realize I can't expect my kids to be carbon copies of me and so you know then I think about well what if I distill it down what do I really want them to be and the truth is I want them on a very basic level I want to be good citizens you know I I want them to stay out of trouble stay out of jail you know (laughs) um stay away from drugs that kind of thing um I want them to be able to support themselves when they get older. And beyond that, I just want them to be happy and I want them to be good giving people. And um, the details, I guess, don't matter. But I do want them to care about others, make life easier for others as opposed to harder. You know, and, and I guess that the best, the only way to do that really is by example. I mean, I can talk to them about it, but I think, you know, basically I've got to treat them well and treat them with respect. And hopefully from that, they'll take away the lesson that they should do the same for others.
2: Well, I have to say, it was an absolute pleasure um, to have you on the show. Thank you for sharing so much of your story. And I can only hope that it was at least more fun than spending a day on a phone with an insurance company. We, we... (laughs) We set a real high bar uh, here, so.
1: Well, I'm also yeah. <laughs> on a smaller question because I know that you actually did um, a master's in Jewish studies at JTS, which uh, my dear co-host over here, Brian, did as well. Did you? I did you guys happen to go at the same time? Or Brian? Also, we we tend to have a bit of a joke in this office that Brian seems to know everybody or has had some sort of connection <laughs> with everybody. It's not like. Like I feel like in my life, it's six degrees from Brian Schwartzman. Um, he's he's basically, or he's basically my connection to pretty much everyone in the world. Did you did you actually find out that you went to JTS around the same time? Um, he told me. I didn't
0: realize that we were there at the same time. But I actually I finished my degree at grad. My first and only year at JPS was 2001 to 2002, so, you know, we were there front stage and center for the World Trade Center oh, God.
1: Um,
0: debacle, and um, I think that and the fact that I was having a lot of trouble with my chronic illnesses that year, I had a tendency to... You know, when I was in undergraduate school, I was very involved. I was in all the groups, I went to lectures, I did all sorts of stuff. At JTS, I pretty much just went to class and back home. Um, and I actually cut down on my number of classes both because of my physical illnesses and probably just because of a pervading depression from having been front, front row and center for the World Trade Center going down. My my apartment was actually directly across the Hudson in Jersey City um, and so I actually watched the second tower, tower fall in person from, you know, the front of my apartment. So, yeah, it, it wasn't a good year for me, and I found living in New York and commuting was just too difficult. So then I transferred to grad. But I think that's probably why I never met Brian because I was kind of being a hermit that whole year.
2: It was it was a hard year. I was I was actually at at JTS at the uh, in the building at, at on, on that day. So it was it was definitely a hard year but uh, we've, we've, we've met now, so Yeah, it's kind uh, of
1: funny how, yeah. the, how we kind of, the world, the universe seems to still manage to bring people together. I'm so glad that we got a chance to talk to you and to finally meet you, and I hope that everyone goes on to jewishrecon.org. The name of the story is called Finding Reconstructionist Judaism in the Lone Star State, so you can read more about Jennifer's story, and you can see a picture of her lovely family, and her kids are just so adorable. I can't handle it. I just find myself melting <laughs> <laughs> from the cuteness. I know, me too. I don't know how you do it every day. I mean, just look at those faces. I don't, I see, I don't think I could be a good parent because they're just so cute. I would just go, oh, you can have all of the candy you want. You just smile well, at me. It's and even can- more
0: adorable when they say, kiss mommy, and then they throw their arms around you and give you a kiss. It's just like so adorable. It- makes me get
1: all choked up (laughs) i'm like i'm melting in my chair and it's not because the air conditioner isn't on it's just this is just so adorable (laughs) so
2: for the the record the air conditioner is not on
1: (laughs) so thank you very much and um and thank you to everybody listening to trending jewish you can follow this story and listen to our podcast you can go on to jewishrecon.org